Hello, I'm Becky O'Connor. And I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look at how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, we're focusing on why interest rates are rising. It's a heavy subject and it isn't going away, so there is quite a lot to pack in. And we'll be covering as much as we can today, including how higher rates are likely to affect our personal finances, the stock market and bond prices. We'll also look at the reasons to be positive, because there are a couple, honestly. Let's start with the basics, which is around why interest rates went up last month. And uh, we're also going to be looking at how high they're likely to get. Okay, Kyle, um, so why are interest rates rising and how far are they expected to go? Well, Becky, um, in short, um, interest rates are rising to um, try and cool down red hot inflation. If we cast our minds back to 18 months or so ago, um, central bankers, they were insisting that inflation would be transitory due to supply chain issues that occurred when economies reopened um, following the ending of lockdowns in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, at the same time as that, there was also a, a surge in global energy prices. However, those forecasts of um, inflation being temporary They've clearly they've not played out, um, and there's lots of different factors behind why that's not played out. One of the main ones is that um, you know the Russia-Ukraine war, which has um, had the effect of um, pushing up energy prices higher. And um, obviously, hindsight's a wonderful thing, um, but obviously, interest rates they're, they're going up, um, you know, quite aggressively at the moment. And um, you know, the, the expectation is that by next spring, interest rates could rise from their current levels of 2.25% to uh, around 5.5%. So in hindsight, central bankers probably may have wished that they actually started increasing interest rates sooner and more gradually than um, they're having to do so at the moment. I mean, mean, Becky, that's going to be a big jump for people, 2.25% to uh, around 5.5% next spring, which is the uh, current predictions. Yeah, absolutely. I saw something that said, although we'd, we'd heard rate predictions of around 6%, they've actually come down a little bit on the back of some evidence that um, spending in the US is beginning to respond. And so it looks maybe like short, sharp shock, yes, up to 5, 5.5%, but then fingers crossed, hope for the best, they could start to settle down and we won't see some of the more dramatic rises that... Um, that have been predicted. But of course, the way interest rates interact with your um, personal finances, like your mortgage and your savings account, isn't straightforward, is it? So the base rate can rise by a certain amount, but mortgage rates might go up even higher and savings rates might not go up by quite as much. So, you know, although it's a general indicator of the trend, it doesn't mean that, you know, 5.5% is necessarily what you're going to get on your mortgage or your savings accounts, which I suppose is unfortunate if you're talking about savings. And really, I suppose it depends what you're paying now as to whether or not you can tolerate um, that kind of rise on your mortgage. But I mean, people will be thinking now, won't they, about whether or not to fix, whether or not to take a risk on discounted variable rates on their mortgage in the hope that maybe rises won't persist for too long um, and they'd start to settle down. And the other thing is looking at savings accounts again. Now, I literally can't remember the last time I looked at a savings account and thought, I'm going to put my money in that. Um, But now, you know, we're sort of seeing 4% on some of the longer term rates, which is, it's not, it's not bad, is it? Yeah, I was looking before we, um, before we started chatting on um, Savings Champion, they had the um, the top 
paying um, fixed rate bonds at the moment for one year is um, 4.1%. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, Becky, I mean, I've been you know, a financial journalist for just over a decade now. I've never seen savings rates um, as high as that. And, um, you know, that sort of rate that's on offer, it's, it's, in, it's, you know, it's in line with, you know, the yield that you can get on the, you know, the FTSE 100. Um, and also we're going to talk about this later as well in response um, to everything that's been going on this year in terms of interest rates going up. Bond yields are at their most attractive level for, uh, for several years. But bringing it back to um, the impact that um, higher rates have on personal finances, I mean, obviously in short, I mean, it's good for savers, but it's bad for borrowers. And just bringing it to my sort of personal circumstances, I mean, I'm I'm really fortunate because I'm on a five-year fixed-rate mortgage, um, which doesn't expire until 2025. If that wasn't the case, I mean, quite lucky again, really, because at the time that I did that fix, the two-year fixed-rate deal was better. But I didn't think it was, um, when you compared it against the five-year fixed-rate deal, I didn't think there was enough of a gap. Um, so I just wanted that certainty, really, of um, knowing what I'm going to, pay for the next five years. And um, I think the rate was around 1.7% at the time. And if you now look at what you can get for a five-year fixed rate mortgage, it's, I think it's, you know, it's well above those levels. It's around three, 4%, I think. Oh my gosh, Kyle, I'll try, I'll try not to be too jealous of that because I think it's going to be very different for us because we remortgage in August next year. And um, actually I'm wondering, you know, I know you can book rates six months in advance, which might seem like a good idea now, but then I'm not sure it's going to be such a good idea in March next year to lock into whatever rates are out then. So I, honestly, I might just be biding my time and waiting to see what rates are like closer to August. But of course, things move so fast. I might have a completely different perspective come next summer. But there's, you know, there's a risk of um, inequality between homeowners now, I guess, between those who did take out those longer term fixes and those who are more exposed to the changes that are coming over the next few months. And I think it's about 2 million borrowers, isn't it, that are in more my boat than yours? Yeah, I think in total, um, I think 78% is um, the amount of people that are in fixed rate uh, mortgages. A lot of people, um, they did take out two-year fixed rate mortgages two years ago or around about then, because I think they were the cheapest they'd ever been. I just find it unbelievable at times that like, you know, Luck has a massive impact on these sort of big policy changes. I mean, the luck of when you've remortgaged or got a mortgage really does have a big bearing on your on your own personal circumstances. Well, look, I think you can take a bit more credit for your decision because it sounds like you did actually put some thought into it. So well, well done. Um, but yeah, I mean, I absolutely think it's, you know, we're going back to kind of pre-financial crisis times. I mean, I remember being a financial journalist talking about mortgages and savings back in 2005, six, And, you know, you were looking at rates that were kind of broadly similar on both. So you had people taking out more offset mortgages where you can offset your savings, your mortgage against your savings balance. And I, I wonder if things like that might start to become popular again and tracker rates and discounted variable rates um, as we try and find the cheapest possible deals. Because of course, you don't want to pay a fee, do you, if you're um, going into a new fix? A really high fee plus a really high fixed rate deal um, might not make sense if rates do start to come down again, but we we just don't know when that will be. I think it's also important to point out that you know the general direction is that interest rates are going up, mm -hmm. and um, yeah. and you know no one can really see at this point in time when they'll start falling again. 
and um, because no one really knows when inflation will when it will cool down and whether these um you know the decisions being made by the Bank of England to increase interest rates whether that will have the desired impact of decreasing inflation Thinking about the stock market now, um, you've been obviously reporting on the impact of interest rates on the stock market since the beginning of the year, really, because when did interest rates start to rise? It was much earlier in the year, wasn't it? Although we've seen the highest rises more recently. Um, what's the impact on the stock market so far? Well, they started rising uh, last December. Um, and at the time, the Bank of England was um, sort of ahead of the curve, really. It, went, it moved before the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, and the European Central Bank, the ECB, um, they they followed after the Bank of England in terms of increasing interest rates. But you know, it's it's been a very uh, difficult year for investors, whether you know whether they invest in equities, bonds, um, or a mixture of those two. They're, they're the two most um, common asset classes. And um, usually, when there's a lot of um, stock market volatility, investors can rely on bonds to, as a to give some sort of defensive ballast to their portfolio. That's not happened this year, um, and I'll go into detail a bit later on the podcast as to as to why that um, not happened. But um, I think before I get to the sort of stock market winners and losers, I think at, at times like these, um, when interest rates are going up and obviously there's increases in uh, in mortgages, I think it's interesting to think about how that could feed through into how people prioritize investing. If you have less disposable income um, to invest, you know, if finance finances become tighter. What do you consider cutting back first? For me, sorry, kids, it would be the junior ISA would be the first thing I would reduce paying into. Um, I think you need to look after yourself first, which is um, why I'd prioritise my own stocks and shares ISA and my pension over the junior ISA. And in fact, it would be the one that, um, that I'd prioritise the most would be the pension because you're, you're essentially you're getting free money in the form of um, tax relief from the government. That free money that you get, it offers a you know, pretty good instant antidote to inflation. Completely. And I think if more people understood that, then uh, they, they would be looking to pensions over other investment accounts, maybe, to give them that uplift in difficult stock market times um, and that extra protection against inflation. I'm totally with you on the junior ISIS, by the way. I've actually um, already stopped contributing to my children's junior ISIS. But I do think that whatever I have in my own stocks and shares ISA in my own pension, they do indirectly benefit from as well. So I think that's worth bearing in mind, you know, if your own financial resilience is important to your kids. And also, you know, if you if you do manage to keep putting something into your own vehicles, then if it grows and, it, you know, you, you've got more in there than you thought, you can still use that to help your children later in life too. So I don't think junior ISAs are always the answer for um, investments that benefit your children. I completely understand your point there on it on it making sense to to cut those first if you do have to cut anything at the moment. But so thinking about um the kind of shares that are likely to win and those that maybe won't do so well in the current climate of higher interest rates and and also higher inflation at the moment given also people's spending is coming down perhaps have you got any ideas? Yeah, it's a, it's a question that I've regularly asked for managers this year. Um, you know, it's a pretty obvious one to ask, but um, a lot of the answers that they come back with, they are quite similar. So um, hopefully that'll be uh, useful to listeners. But um, a point that a lot of the fund managers make is that um, it is trickier than normal to identify what the winners are going to be because normally 
and interest rate interest rate rises, they usually happen to cool down an economy. But at the moment, interest rates they're going up to try and cool down inflation. At the same time, that economic growth is slowing and potentially going to enter a recession at some point in the in the near future. So um, yeah, just to give that sort of context. But of course, you know, rising interest rates they, they affect different sectors of the stock market in different ways. This year, there's been a market rotation out of um, growth shares, and these include technology companies. So these companies, their valuations, they're based on cash flows that the companies are expected to to deliver in the more distant future. And when interest rates go up, those future cash flows, they're devalued, and that's weighed down um, their share prices so far this year. A lot of uh, technology companies have seen their share prices fall quite notably. And in general, rising interest rates, um, another point to make is that it doesn't bode well for economically sensitive stocks, uh, particularly house builders. As we touched on earlier, Becky, um, in response to um, higher interest rates, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be tougher times for, for, you know, for people that have got mortgages, which obviously a lot of people have. And in terms of first-time buyers, there'll be tougher affordability tests in order to get a mortgage. Um, and also, for people that are on the property ladder, it's also going to be tougher for them to pass those uh, mortgage affordability tests. So I think this could, the logic is that this will result in less demand from first-time buyers, while those on the property ladder, they may be more inclined to stay put if they cannot borrow you know, what they need in order to, um, to make that next step up the property ladder. And it's all about su- supply and demand. And you know, if, de- if demand declines, then surely there's the risk there that you know, house prices do fall. And um, on that front, you know, I've seen some mortgage analysts over the past week predict that UK house prices could fall 10% next year. I've seen predictions of 20% as well, but um, in, in general, I've seen you know, 10% quoted a bit more often. Um, and in terms of um, potential winners, there are certain sectors that benefit from higher interest rates. Banks are one that um, fund managers often talk about, and that's because banks, they, they make their money by lending savers cash at a higher rate that they then pay interest to those savers. Um, and those higher interest rates enable them to increase their spread and improve their profit margin. However, from some conversations I've had with some fund managers, it's, it's not clear cut that banks will be a winner this time. Because if we enter a recession, which looks like you know it could happen, then there'll be more borrowers defaulting on their loans. Um, so it's, it's you know it's it's very tricky times to try you know for an investor to identify these winners and losers. And then just one more point to make is that I mean one of our uh, full managers on our Super Sixty list, uh, Joe Curtis, he manages the um, City of London Investment Trust. I recently spoke to him, and he pointed out that resilient sectors such as utilities. Their best place to do well in a rising interest rate environment. You know, you made the sort of simple point that, you know, people they have to carry on paying their water and electricity bills. And that makes the earnings of those companies quite reliable, makes them reliable. So it's thinking about really like, you know, what people are spending their money on in hard times, where that whatever left of disposable income is going to be going and what other pressures households face. So it's really about households, isn't it? And that you know what they're going to be spending on and what they're not anymore. Yeah, it's you know it's a case of what companies are essential, which ones are people not going to cut back on. People may cut back on Netflix, but you know in terms of you know a utility company, I mean you're not going to not pay your water bill, are you? So yeah, it's, yeah. it's companies that have, you know in a really strong financial footing in terms of having products or services 
that people view as being essential. They have resilient and defensive qualities, and those are the sort of qualities that fund managers do tend to focus on at such times when rates are going up. So you'd expect as well, I mean, thinking about Netflix, I actually kind of think that is an essential in our house now, but you know, we will not spend as much on restaurants or we're probably only you know, going to go on one UK-based holiday next year, but we'll keep the Netflix, I reckon. So thinking about bonds, now bonds behave differently to equities, don't they? You know, you've got corporate bonds, but you've also got government bonds. And do they behave differently in a high interest rate environment? Yes, they do. I think firstly, I'll just give a quick sort of definition of what a bond is. They are more complicated than equities. So I just want to get that across first. So, I mean, bonds, they're simply a loan that companies or governments take out via financial markets. So, you know, as an investor, you buy a bond from a company or a government and you're lending your money to them for a fixed period of time while you're waiting for the bond to mature. Some bonds, they mature in, you know, five years, 10 years, 30 years. While you're waiting for that to happen and hopefully get your money back, you're paid an interest and that's known as the coupon. And, you know, all things being equal, you know, unless the company or the government defaults on their bond obligations, then you should hopefully then receive your money back at the end of the term. But yeah, like, like shares, you know, bonds, they're, they're traded on the stock market and their, their prices and their yields change. A bond price and a bond yield, they have an inverse relationship. And it's important that, you know, um, investors get to grips with that. And during times when um, inflation's high and interest rates are going up, what happens here is bond yields, they rise and bond prices fall. And the reason why is because with inflation, bonds, they pay a fixed level of income. So when inflation rises, that fixed income becomes less valuable. And at the same time, when interest rates are going up, bonds, they become less attractive because there's greater competition from cash returns. Uh, you know, we touched on earlier how those savings rates are um, looking much more attractive than they have been over the past decade. And there's also then better deals that come onto the market from newly issued bonds to reflect that interest rates are going up. So that results in uh, bond prices falling and uh, yields rising. Okay, great. You know, we've obviously seen some issues with uh, the gilts and the gilt yields over 30 years and that affecting pension funds, which maybe make people think that, you know, bonds and government gilts are potentially risky. But that, that was very unique to pension funds, wasn't it? And actually, in the main, bonds are considered less risky. But you did mention there is still this risk of default. And I wonder now, because of the times that we're in, whether it's considered that there could be more risk of default on some types of bonds than others. Is that something to be concerned about? It's a case of risk versus rewards. I mean, a UK government bond, you know, known as a gilt, they're among the safest bonds that people can, can own. You know, that's, that's at the safe end of the, of the sort of bond market. And then at the riskier end of the bond market is um, they're called high yield bonds or junk bonds. Here, you get a higher level of income offered to you, but there's a greater risk of default. Ultimately, that's, the, uh, that's a trade-off that investors have to consider and weigh up. But I mean, year to date, I was looking at figures earlier, the average uh, UK gilt fund, it's fell by 25% year to date, wow. which, which is an incredible fall. And, you know, someone who was unfortunate to buy at the start of the year and still owns that UK Gill fund, the average sort of UK Gill fund, then um, that's not a good position to, uh, to unfortunately be in. But however, Becky, there is a silver lining to all this. And that is for, for new investors now, 
given that bond yields have risen and prices have fallen, those yields now on offer from, from bonds are at their most attractive level in several years. So that does offer a silver lining to investors. They can now receive a higher income today. For the past past decade, really, there's been this argument called Tina, uh, not Tina Turner. It's um, <laughs> there's there's no alternative to equities, and a lot of market commentators think this is this has really helped equity markets do well over the past decade because the yields that were on offer from bonds, whether they were corporate or government bonds, they were very, very low by historic standards. So there wasn't much value there for investors, essentially. And because of that, investors were, you know, they were buying equities because there was no alternative. But now there is an alternative, which is interesting. Do you know what? I thought, this, I thought that we were, we were going to have a really depressing conversation today. But actually, <laughs> you've given a few reasons to be cheerful. But I guess it does depend, doesn't it, on whether you've got any spare money to invest. So it's, you know, there are still options for things to do with your money. And in fact, some of those things might be safer in some ways, or, you know, less volatile than some of the things that because of Tina, whoever knew that Tina was the reason, um, we'd all been investing in equities. And, you know, it actually, Maybe we can be feeling sort of grateful that there has been this rise in interest rates and we have got more options for things to do with our money. As we were saying, as long as you know your mortgage rate hasn't gone up dramatically or your rent hasn't gone up dramatically because your landlord's mortgage has gone up. And uh, yeah, I guess it's really, you know, how much we can take advantage of these things depends quite a lot on how leveraged we are as individuals. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and, you know, in terms of what interactive investor customers have been doing, I mean, we've seen a notable increase over the, over the past uh, week or so in some investors buying UK government bonds directly. The bonds that are more popular are ones that have maturities of five years or less. These bonds, they're less sensitive to rising interest rates. And, you know, some of these bonds, they're offering income of, you know, over 4%. So, you know, buy now. And then in a couple of years, you know, hopefully get your money back. And in the meantime, you're going to get 4%. That income is paid twice a year. I mean, you know, given, given how volatile stock markets have been this year, that's potentially quite, um, quite an attractive uh, option for investors. Yeah, definitely. Especially those, you know, who are a bit older in retirement and looking for income, it sounds like. Any other reasons to be positive? I think, I think you've covered quite a few there. I'm feeling quite upbeat. At times like these, you know, investors have got to sort of just go back to the investment rule book really and remember that, you know, investing, it's a, it's a long-term game ultimately. And that, you know, when stock markets are volatile, that is quite often the time to potentially try and pick up bargains. Obviously, there's always the risk of catching the proverbial fallen knife, but that is when you do have the chance to buy share prices and funds that, you know, are at lower prices and hopefully benefit when, you know, over, over a long-term view of at least five years, you know, if you're buying today, hopefully in five years' time or longer, you know, they'll be in a higher position. Yeah, it's having that, it's that five-year marker, isn't it, for long-term? Because we often talk about long-term, but without giving a real time frame for it. But I think particularly at the moment, given that we're, you know, we're still not out of the woods on energy prices and mortgage rates and everything else. And although, you know, forecasts aren't kind of sticking with the sort of 5.5% interest rates for next year, there is still uncertainty, isn't there? So, you know, you'd be looking to make gains over five years and not not panicking too much if you don't get them in the short term. Actually, I'm, you know, I am feeling um, 
genuinely a lot more upbeat than I was at the start of this podcast where I thought, oh no, how are we going to give anyone anything practical and positive to do? But we hope that you're feeling the same after this first episode. Thanks so much for listening to On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please follow the show in your podcast app and tell a friend about it. If you get a chance, we'd be very grateful if you could leave us a review or a rating in your podcast app too. And thank you also for sending in your questions and talking points. And please do keep them coming. Uh, you can do so via Twitter at IIOnTheMoney or email otm at ii.co.uk and we'll start answering those in the coming weeks. In the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website at ii.co.uk. See you next week.